All right, folks, welcome back to the Fitz News Studio for another edition of Your Week in Review. We have got a lot to cover this week, folks. A big, exclusive, expansive interview with one of the lead investigators on the Stephen Smith homicide case. He sat down with us in Charleston, South Carolina for a wide-ranging discussion. We're going to bring you some of the highlights from that interview with Steve Peterson, who again knows this Stephen Smith case perhaps better than anybody. We've also got a lot of political news to cover, folks. Some school choice developments in South Carolina we're going to get into, but also a battle within the Republican Party in South Carolina that could spill over and have significant impacts on the 2024 presidential fight. We're going to bring you all that and more on the Week in Review. So on the Stephen Smith case, obviously the big development this week was a long hour, 40-minute interview that I conducted with Steve Peterson. I'm saying it in the Massachusetts dialect because he's from Worcester. Worcester, Worcester. Dylan Nolan's from Massachusetts. What is it? Worcester? Worcester. 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 There we go. Peterson is a veteran DEA agent, Drug Enforcement Agency, senior special agent with that agency for decades. Saw some incredible stuff during his tenure there. But his connection to the Stephen Smith case is the fact that he was the private investigator hired by Andy Savage, who was the former attorney for Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother. Now, obviously this case, like everything connected to the Murdochs, has become extremely controversial. It's become extremely uh, contentious. Uh, people have taken sides. There are outcomes that people desire, one versus the other. It's all about you know, teams, factionalism. But what we've tried to do, ever since the end of the Murdoch trial in particular, as we've zeroed back in on the Stephen Smith case, again, this is a story we've been covering for a long time. We've been out front on Stephen Smith for a long time. But in the aftermath of the double homicide trial about Murdoch, one of the things we've tried to do is to lay out the facts as we know them. Uh, core documents, uh, interviews, letters, uh, audio clips, you name it. Everything that we've got on this investigation, we've been trying to put those raw materials out with analysis just to let you decide, let you take it all in, digest it, think it over. But the interview with Steve Peterson is significant because this is an interview with an individual who, by some circles, has been told to stop talking about this case. And as I noted in our coverage, when people are told to stop talking, that's when we start listening. Because odds are there's something there that's worth hearing. Even if it challenges every assumption you've had about this case. And that's the thing that I like about this interview, is that Steve Peterson put forward so much detail. He studied this case, investigated this case. He knows more about this case than probably anybody else. And to hear him challenge some of those core assumptions that, that I've held, that others have held, I mean, that's what the search for truth is about, being willing to let your core convictions, your core beliefs be challenged. That's, what it's, that's how you find the truth, people. This is an almost eight-year-old cold case, and we are not going to get any closer to the truth unless we allow all of us to have those core conceptions challenged. But there's a couple points you're going to see in these clips we're about to roll some very seismic developments. First of all, Peterson said that the state law enforcement division in its investigation of Stephen Smith's homicide has conclusively excluded Buster Murdoch and Paul Murdoch 
for being anywhere near the vicinity of this crime when it took place. That's huge. Hadn't been announced publicly. He also discussed a confrontation that he had with the individual he believes is ultimately responsible for Stephen Smith's death. That individual is one of the two persons of interest in connection with this case currently being investigated by the State Law Enforcement Division SLED. But the thing that blew my mind was Peterson's insistence that this could, could be an actual vehicular homicide. That all the conventional wisdom we've heard about, Stephen Smith being murdered and then brought to this crime scene, according to him, could be wrong. And when you look at the crime scene photos, which, again, we've done, they're far worse than even anything I saw in the Murdoch murders crime scene photos. Just horrific. But there is evidence in those photos to, to suggest that perhaps Peterson's correct. Just the sheer amount of blood at that crime scene. How did all of that blood get there if, if, if Smith was murdered somewhere else and, and brought to that location? Again, that challenges everything that we've believed about this case for years. But the big question I asked Peterson was how confident was he that charges will ultimately brought, be brought in this case, which again, going on eight years, people, eight years. We said it in the show previously, a crime scene's like a stove, turns off and gets colder by the minute. Well, this, is, this case is as cold as it gets, as cold as it gets. I encourage you to watch the full hour and 40-minute interview with myself and Steve Peterson because it is one of the most compelling interviews I think we've ever done here at Fitz News. But I wanted to show you these clips from that interview covering those points we just discussed so that you can get the general sense of that conversation and some of these, again, seismic developments related to the case of Stephen Smith. Let's go to those clips. One of the first things I noted is that, first of all, this kid is in the middle of this road, square in the middle of this road, mm-hmm. not off to the side where you'd be if you're hit by a car or a window of a car. Right. What's he doing in the road? Second, there's no, doesn't appear to be a blood trail to there. It appears as though he's literally. But you see a huge it? blood splatter. Correct. You see a massive blood splatter. Walk us through what you saw in the crime scene. You see, you see a massive contusion right above his, what I assume is his right eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's to, when I looked at it, it looks to me as if he was either struck with like a two by six, or the side mirror of a pickup truck, big mirror. So you, that's what it looks like to me. You think hit and runs in play? I I absolutely do. Really? Yes, mm-hmm. yes I do. How does he end up in the middle of the road? Can't answer those. I I don't have <laughs> I don't have all the answers. Fair enough. Uh, I haven't seen all the evidence. Mm-hmm. How can I have all the answers? I haven't seen all the information. But, but then Sled says, also, just so you know, we have proof that Buster and Paul were not even in the county on the day Stephen died. Oh, wow. And I was like, what kind of proof? What do you mean proof? Well, can't say. This is the 80-20. So they have told you that during the course of their investigation, they've excluded Buster, Buster, and, Paul. Buster and Paul. This is what they told me back then, two years ago. 18 months Two ago. Two years ago. Yeah, back in 2021. Yes, they told me this. And I was like, okay, so, all right, well, if what you're that telling me is true. That would seem to be pertinent information. Well, yes, <laughs> it was, because, because of that, I stopped pursuing theory A. Mm-hmm. 
because they just told me theory A doesn't work because mm -hmm. your main players aren't there. Mm -hmm. So I pursued more theory B. Mm -hmm. And I went to the home of one of theory B players and I interviewed him. Now, I put a card in his thing and he called me. And I said, I want to talk to you. Well, what do you want to talk about? I don't talk on the phone. Mm -hmm. I want to talk. Oh, I, no, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to talk, blah, 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 blah. I said, well, listen, it just involves something that happened years ago, many years ago. Well, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what it is. <laughs> he says, no, I don't want to talk to you. Uh, you can call my lawyer. Sure, great. Give me your lawyer's name. And he doesn't. He doesn't have a lawyer. He doesn't. So he never gives me his, any lawyer's name. So then one day I just show up at his house. Knocking, I told you I didn't want to talk to you. Yeah, but I thought maybe you decided you changed your mind. I just didn't get that call. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a cop anymore. I don't have to do things by the book as much as I did back in the day. So yes, I ignored that. And by now, Sandy and Andy are parting ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sandy's not taking the advice that Andy is giving. They're having disagreements. That's between them. I don't get involved in that, but they, they end up parting ways. So I talked to one of the guys there, and he is adamant. I mean, he is aggressively uh, trying to repel my questions. Hmm. He doesn't want to talk about it. He's not. And I'm thinking, listen, dude, this happened five years ago. Mm -hmm. If you're not involved in anything, wh why are you so upset about stuff? Mm -hmm. If you had nothing to do with it, who cares? Mm -hmm. Just tell me that. You know, let's talk about this. No, and he's screaming, I'm going to let my dog out on you. He's got this big dog that's... He's got in his little trailer barking. I was like, well, that probably wouldn't be a good idea. But, and so we go back and forth and back and forth. And he's, I'm going to call the sheriff and get you arrested. You're trespassing on my property. Get off, get off, get off. And I said, okay, all right, I'm leaving. I said, but I've seen pictures of your truck that were taken the day after Stephen's accident. And I've seen the damage. Yeah. But does the fact we may never... Get an answer. Oh, we'll have an answer. Along. The problem is we Bro. may never get. What's the final answer? If I tell you A and B killed your son, mm -hmm. I'm convinced, Will, A and B killed your son. Mm -hmm. I'll never be able to prove it. I'll never be able to take him to trial. They'll never be arrested or charged for it. That's a tough pill to swallow. Of course it is. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So does that mean the case is solved because one guy said it's A and B? In your heart, aren't you always wondering, well, maybe it was something else. Maybe, yeah. it, maybe it was theory A. Maybe I don't have all the information. Maybe, maybe somebody was concealing stuff from him so he couldn't pursue that, wouldn't pursue that, which led him down this road. Maybe that was the intention, to deflect attention away from theory A to focus on theory B. I, uh, mm -hmm. Right? So when, when do you say we know what we know? It is what it is. I don't know. If it was my child... Probably never. All right, once again, I would encourage you to go to fitznews.com where you can see the full interview with myself and investigator Steve Peterson. It is worth the watch, people. Again, challenging all the conceptions I've held in this case. But once again, I want to point this out. This is how you investigate people. You bring folks on who have views different than yours. You don't block those views. You don't censor those views. You don't criticize. You, you have that conversation. And that's what this news outlet is committed to, not only in the Stephen Smith case, but every case that we cover.
holding that conversation again, even if it means challenging our core beliefs. We'll continue to do that because, folks, that's the only way that we will truly get justice for Stephen Smith. If you followed our news outlet for any amount of time, you know that we believe very passionately in some core issues intended to make the state of South Carolina a better place. And in fact, frankly, this is stuff that applies to all states, you know, uh, schools that produce outcomes, uh, economies that produce jobs and raise income levels, justice systems that produce justice, not injustice, which is what we have in the Palmetto State. But our objective in pushing reform is to fix these problems. But unfortunately, the vast number of politicians at the State House in Columbia, South Carolina, and frankly, in Washington, D.C., and in state houses across the country, too often they are more concerned with sound bites and pretending to reform rather than actually getting the job done. And in South Carolina, we see this over and over on the issue of parental choice. South Carolina has one of the worst government-run education systems in the country. It's been that way for decades, but if you look at the nation's report card, the NAEP, you see the state continuing to fall even further behind the rest of the country. And that's notable because this downward progression is happening at a time when the investment in education and government-run education continues to skyrocket. We're at the point, folks, nearly $18,000 per kid per year. In fact, it's 17569 bucks according to the latest state budget. That does not include stimulus money, by the way. It doesn't include all the COVID money. It doesn't include money from bond referendums or, by the way, the $2 billion that government-run schools in the state are sitting on in cash reserves. I mean, it is a mountain of money, but it, it is not enhancing academic achievement. It's not creating innovation in education, and it is sure as hell not lifting these students up here in South Carolina to reach their full potential so that they can become productive members of a prosperous, uh, free society. So what's to be done? Well, if you listen to the Republican politicians in South Carolina, it's to continue throwing more money into that broken government system. Again, the classic good money after bad, right? That's what they're doing. But there's another way, and that's the way that this news outlet has been pushing for four years, and I'm referring to school choice. Now, when we talk about that, that word, those words, school choice, what does it mean? Well, a lot of people have a lot of different definitions. And unfortunately, here in the Palmetto State, the only definition so far has been a very limited special needs program. Uh, again, impacts perhaps you know, 15,000 students, but we're talking about a system of nearly 800,000 kids, people. So that, again, there's a, a drop in the bucket. So what we have proposed and what we have continued to advocate for is a universal school choice system. Now, I thought I was pretty aggressive in universal school choice people. I thought, you know, my position was one of, hey, let's give parents at least a third, a half of the money the state's spending and let them go into the free market and find a better outcome. Let communities come together in search of better outcomes. But apparently I am, you know, kind of squishy on this issue. There's a a young woman we interviewed out of Austin, Texas, Randon Steinhauser. She is with the Young Americans for Liberty, a group that's very active on this issue. In fact, she's the national school choice director for that organization. I sat down with Randon this week for an interview in which she laid out what she believes is a much better solution than just a half or a third of that money. Let's cut real quick to that clip. One of the things I wanted to ask you uh, as we look at, at states like Arizona, which have passed what I would consider to be universal choice legislation 
I'm thinking of it more from the perspective of who is eligible and how much money. Uh, obviously, yeah. you're, you're looking at the, the output side, but before we get to that, who should be eligible for choice? And if among that population, how much money should they get? Let's say, let's take South Carolina with that $18,000 per year per child. What percentage of that, Randon, do you think should be in the hands of parents to decide as they see fit? 100%. 100%. They're your tax dollars. They're your child. You're already paying property taxes. In South Carolina, we know there's a lot of room for improvement in the amount of money the government's already taking from us. So let's give it back to the parents, allow them that freedom to choose how their child is educated. If they choose to go to a private education institution and use 100% of the ESA in that way, that's great. If they want to do curriculum, homeschooling, tutoring, therapy, whatever it is to have that education that works for their child. But you're right. In terms of universal, that's a key term because it means every single child. This is not a place for carve outs. This is not a place to say because you live in this zip code or you have this learning difference or because your parents make this much money, there is no limit on what a child can learn. All right. So thanks again to Randon Steinhauser for sitting down with us and talking about school choice. Randon also had a great guest editorial published on fitznews.com this week. Be sure to check that out too. Again, our microphone open to anybody, no matter what your views are on education, on the economy, any issue. We are an open microphone, an open forum. Would love to host your uh, views, even if they don't necessarily align with ours. That's what this is, again, all about, hosting that discussion. But speaking of that discussion, Randon's group is going to be very active in what is becoming the dominant divide, the dominant issue at the South Carolina State House this year, and I'm referring to an ongoing battle between the conservative wing of the Republican Party and the central centrist Republican establishment. Now, we started reporting on this last year, uh, back when the Republican caucus and the House of Representatives started proposing a loyalty oath, which was designed to force those conservative members not to campaign against the more fiscally liberal Republicans. And again, there's a, this is an ideological divide, people. You've got one group in the middle that believes the key to unlocking South Carolina's economic potential is giving money away to big corporations like Scout Motors. They got a $1.3 billion handout just this last month, people. $1.3 billion. When was the last time small businesses and individual taxpayers got that kind of relief? Well, the answer is very easy. Never. It doesn't happen. But that conservative wing of the group is pushing for that kind of broad-based tax relief, which they believe, and I happen to agree, is more conducive to growing jobs, raising income levels. Again, it's the same kind of debate we're talking about with that school choice issue. But look for groups to start throwing big money into this back and forth, this civil war, if you will, within the GOP, national groups, because this is not just happening against the backdrop of these important state issues. It's not just about decisions at the state house involving your wallet, uh, your pocketbook, or your child's education. This debate is happening in a, in a much bigger context. And I'm talking, of course, about the 2024 first in the South Republican presidential nominating fight. Now, in case you hadn't been following this, there are four announced candidates so far. One of them you probably know pretty well. He's the former U.S. President Donald Trump. According to the latest polling in this race, he's drawn the support of about 41% of the GOP electorate in South Carolina. That's roughly what it's been for the past few months. Not a lot of change there. In second place, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, DeSantis has not made an official visit to South Carolina as a candidate. In fact, he hasn't made a public appearance in South Carolina yet, but that is changing 
this coming week. DeSantis coming to Spartanburg, South Carolina for his first visit. Again, not as an announced candidate, but his first public appearance as a prospective presidential candidate. It's going to be a big, big event up there in Spartanburg. Fitz News will be there. We're going to bring you all the latest on that. But the big mover in this poll was former South Carolina governor Nikki Haley. Now, Haley had been struggling. She was pilloried when she announced by the conservative press. They hit her all over the, the map for being a weather vane, for constantly changing her views on things. Tricky Nikki, they called her. Again, I may have some uh, credit for that nickname, but we, we won't go there. But Nikki Haley's on the move, folks. And I, I want to tell you something. Let's attribute it here to the value of substantive campaigning. Now, do I trust Nikki Haley to implement anything she promises on the campaign trail? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think you want to take that, those promises with the proverbial ocean of salt people. But I will say this, Haley being able to stake out some substantive positions, particularly on the issue of Social Security, on Medicaid, things that a lot of other politicians, including Trump and DeSantis, are scared to touch. The fact she's willing to go out and, and stake out some positions on those issues Credit where credit is due. And also, folks, at least here in South Carolina, have responded. Haley was in single digits when she announced her campaign. According to that latest poll out of Winthrop University, she's up to 18% challenging DeSantis. In fact, they're literally within the margin of error, statistically tied for second place behind Donald Trump. Now, Haley's improved position may not last. South Carolina uh, U.S. Senator Tim Scott is preparing to jump into this race. And folks, Scott not only has a ton of favorability and banked up political capital here in South Carolina. He's got a ton of money. And again, he's not going to need it to build his name ID here in South Carolina, but going to Iowa, going to New Hampshire, going to Nevada, going to these other early states, Tim Scott's going to have the resources to wage a very effective, very credible presidential campaign. He's also, by the way, hired two of the sharpest uh, political strategists here in South Carolina, Matt Moore, Mark Newt, both of those guys working with Tim Scott, they are very good at what they do. So be on the lookout for his announcement here in the next couple weeks as Tim Scott becomes the second home state candidate to jump into the 2024 presidential election. If you want to keep track on who's on the rise, who's fallen, who's holding, I would encourage you once again, check out Fitz News Palmetto Political Stock Index. I work on that every week with our Mark Powell, the intrepid columnist. He does a great column, Palmetto Past and Present on Fitz News. Check that out, too, if you had not seen it. But Mark and I, every week, every Friday afternoon, we publish the very latest Palmetto Political Stock Index, where you can figure out where you should bank your political capital. But keep an eye on that segment as Fitz News continues to follow the very latest developments, not only at the State House with the GOP Civil War, but how that battle is spilling over into the big fight for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024. All right, so we're going to close our episode with Matthias, my youngest son. Maddie, you want to tell him what we call snuggling? What do we call snuggling? Do we say muggle? Say muggle, daddy? <laughs> muggle. <laughs> I know, lights, lights. Thanks, everybody, for checking in. We will catch you next week on the Week in Review. That's right, buddy. <laughs> Huh? <laughs>